While everybody is uh, finding their seats, we'll uh, go over a few announcements. The only announcement I can really think of that's of an immediate nature is uh, Sunday, Christmas morning, we will have, that's, I'm not Christmas morning, but Christmas Eve morning, we will have uh, communion, Lord's table that morning. And then er, the schedule will be the same throughout the, uh, the holidays. We'll have uh, Tuesday, Thursday bi- night Bible class, and, and uh, nothing there will change. Is there anything else, Alan? Yeah, that's right. Men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning and deacons meeting Saturday morning. And then uh, um, I can't think of anything else that, um, that's coming up immediately. I am feeling somewhat better. This is a nasty flu bug. Somebody at pre-trib brought it and passed it around. And there's at least, um, I know of at least two other pastors who got sick after they went home. Last week, Dan Ingram was here. He flew home on Friday, woke up feeling under the weather on Saturday morning, and it hit me Friday night. So um, he had did not have Bible class last night. It is... If you get this, just stay down. I mean, it's just, it, it is the flu, and it's just achy, and you just, and and every day you think, oh, I'll be good tomorrow, and then you're worse, and then you're better, and then you're worse. So it's, uh, I appreciate your prayers. Uh, I don't think there's anything else. So we look forward to uh, everybody being over, uh, the men being here Friday, uh, Saturday morning for men's men's prayer breakfast. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're all in right relationship with the Lord and ready to uh, study the Word this evening. I hope everybody has been enjoying their fellowship with the Lord today and read your Bible today and uh, learned a few things. And that's one of the things we're trying to emphasize on Saturday morning men's prayer breakfast is have the men come and talk about what they've been reading and any questions they might have and just have a discussion around the Word. So let's uh, bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we're so very grateful that we have this day to serve you, this day to Uh, walk with you this day to read your word, study your word, come to have a greater appreciation of who you are and what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in history. And our generation is no different from any other generation in history dealing with the cosmic system surrounding us, uh, Satan's attacks constantly through the thought systems of the world. And Father, we fight this on a daily battle in terms of our own Uh, spiritual warfare, just learning to walk with you and put on the full armor of God. Father, we pray that as we continue our study about angels and demons and the angelic conflict, that you'd help us to 
uh, understand and internalize these principles, and some of which is difficult to understand because so little is given in Scripture. And we pray that you will help guide and direct our thinking in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have been progressing through this section of 1 Peter 3.19, which has a verse that talks about Jesus going to preach to the spirits in prison. And so for the last four or five lessons, I've been taking time to go through and review us on what, who these spirits in prison are, where did they come from, what's it referred to, what's their destiny, things of that nature. And it has to do with the angelic rebellion or the angelic conflict. Uh, this is a part of our broader topic for what is referred to as spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is actually a concept that's been terribly abused within the charismatic and Pentecostal community, and that teaching has leaked over into uh, a lot of mainstream evangelicalism, and it, it is divorced from what the scripture says, and they find a demon behind every tree, and they overblame demons for uh, a lot of things, especially uh, decisions that are made by by human beings. And as we've been walking through this logically, we started off looking at the fall of Satan, and we looked at Ezekiel 28. And that passage, which talks about this being called the king of um, the king of Tyre, Ezekiel twenty-eight starts off with a, a condemnation of the prince of Tyre, who is accused of wanting to be like a god. But then the terminology shifts in verse twelve and talking about the king of Tyre, which is a different personage, someone who is behind. The throne. Now, it's interesting. I've had some questions. We're going to talk about this. I'll mention it a little bit as we go through tonight on some things. But there's a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Heiser is uh, one of the um, gurus at, at, at Lagos. And he's not one of these guys that um, I find a lot of them like this. They're, they're really bright. They have IQs that are very, very high. And they assimilate a lot of information, but somehow they've got three or four screws loose. And uh, if you look at the table of contents, the reason I mention this is there have been several people either in the congregation or extended congregation who've read his book and asked me questions. And um, uh, one of the things that you notice if you just look at his table of contents, the, la the title of the last two chapters, the one is, one is the already kingdom and... Um, the uh, other, the last chapter is the not yet kingdom. And if you're theologically astute, which people who listen to me should be, that refers to a doctrine that was really developed by a guy named George Eldon Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary in the late 50s and early 60s. And the mention of Fuller Seminary should get people to to immediately get all their antenna wavering because it was the first evangelical seminary to throw out um, inerrancy. And it was a huge scandal back in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. And this was a major issue in the battle for the Bible. And you can go back to some of the things that Dave Farnell said at the pastor's conference last year. Anyway, that's where, that's where uh, George Eldon Ladd was. He was post-trib. 
uh, post-trib dispensationalist, meaning he believed that the rapture doesn't occur till the end of the tribulation. But he put forth this idea that we're already in the kingdom in some sense, and but it's not yet fully here. And that has been used to, um, that that is in contrast, contrast to what I've taught in Matthew and what I've taught consistently on dispensationalism, that Jesus did not inaugurate the kingdom when he came. He offered the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected. And so the kingdom was postponed. The kingdom is a Jewish kingdom. Everything you read about in the Old Testament says that the kingdom is a kingdom that is a geopolitical earthly kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem and Jesus sitting on a literal throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling the Messianic kingdom. And when Jesus ascended to heaven and the church started, we didn't get a, a, a spiritual form of the kingdom. Now, that idea that came from Lad has leaked into Dallas Seminary, and it was absorbed by some professors there who used it to develop a new uh, idea called progressive dispensationalism, which isn't progressive or dispensational in my opinion, and that, but that's inherent to it. But it's also inherent to amillennialism, that we're in some form of the kingdom. And you'll hear people, you'll hear evangelicals talk about Jesus now, we worship the king. He's not the king right now. Always remember this. Remember this analogy. How long have we been in Samuel? We've been in Samuel a long time. What happened in 1 Samuel 16? Quiz time. What happened in 1 Samuel 16? Samuel went to Jesse. Jesse had all his boys out. One of them was missing. He finally said, bring that boy in from the sheep. And what did Samuel do? He anointed David to be king of Israel and to replace Saul. Did, was David ever referred to as the king between 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 1, which we would have started son, a Tuesday night if I'd been here? Ever referred to as king? No, he's not the king. He is the anointed king who will replace Saul, but he refused all along to kill Saul because Saul was the king. And he's not the king. He's the anointed one who will replace the king on God's timing. This is the key analogy that you have to understand because when we're living in the church age, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father sitting on the Father's throne. He's not the king. He's like David. He's anointed, but he hasn't been given the kingdom yet. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees the vision of the Son of Man going to the ancient of days and being given the kingdom. What does he do when he's given the kingdom? He goes to the earth to establish the kingdom. So the time frame for that event is at the end of the tribulation period. During the seven-year tribulation period, the church is in heaven, and Jesus is going to go to the Father and ask for the kingdom. And the Father now finally says, It's yours. And he's going to come and establish it. 
Okay, so there's no already not yet king, king, sense of the kingdom, but that is dominating so much of evangelicalism, and people sing hymns about the kingdom, and they say, well, what are you doing for the kingdom today? And it's sloppy theology, and it's sloppy language, and it's really pathetic because they don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church. So one of the first big red flags when you look at Heiser's um, table of contents is that he's got an already not yet ki uh, kingdom thing working for him. Um, another thing is that, and I was looking at this today, is when he go gives his uh, uh, study of Ezekiel 28, he gets down to verse 12 and 13 where it shifts from being the prince of Tyre to the to the king of Tyre and his explanation, he never changes his vocabulary. He continues to talk about him as the prince of Tyre as if they're the same person. That's sloppy exegesis, but it fits his scenario. So he's got some good things, but got some bad things. Remember what makes Satan's lie so bad is not the 98% that's right. It's the 2% that's bad. And I'm going to point out some other things because they're germane to this lesson. But we looked at Ezekiel chapter 28, and I just wanted to make that point. And then we looked at Isaiah 14. And in, in Heiser's favor, uh, he does uh, believe that this is a reference to, to Satan and Lucifer, contrary to where a lot of contemporary scholars are going. And I pointed that out uh, last week, that in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, you have a lot of contemporary scholars who are saying ne neither one refers to, to the fall of, of Satan or Lucifer. And um, uh, if they do hold to one uh, being the fall of Lucifer, it would be Ezekiel. But I Isaiah, they try to tag and attach to some, Bab some historical Babylonian king that they don't know which one it is. So last week we looked at uh, Isaiah chapter 14, and these are the five I wills that characterized the creature known as, in the Hebrew, it's Halel ben Shahar. Halel is the morning star, uh, or the bright star, the shining one. And so that shining one was translated over into uh, Latin as a form of the word for light, for looks, for light, and uh, Lucis, all those are cognates, and so it came as a proper name, Lucifer. But it really, the shining one is a, usually a term that refers to the Venus, the morning star. So this is just a title. Halal bin Shahar is uh, the title for this cherub who fell, as described in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. He's fallen from heaven, and he wanted to ascend to heaven over the uh, power of God. Now in this chart, which builds a little slowly, we see in eternity past here, God's throne, and there's Lucifer, the anointed cherub that covers, and then he rebels against God. This, uh, this is one view um, that Satan rebels against God at some point in eternity past, and here this red line, the ascending line indicates the uh, the fall of Satan, and uh, as described in various passages where he's mentioned there. And then we have uh, the creation, uh, the first dispensation. So this chart doesn't really tell you when it happened. It's, it, it looks like it's in eternity past, but it puts it uh, really within 
the six days of creation. And, and what we're really getting to uh, tonight, let me just build this out so we can get to the next slide, is when did Satan fall? There are basically three views on when Satan fell. And the Bible doesn't precisely tell us. It doesn't say this is when Satan fell. It is put together by comparing Scripture with Scripture and trying to understand these dynamics. And so the th here are the three views. The first view is that angels were created during the creation week of Genesis 1. Now, there are some different views I had one professor at uh, Dallas Seminary who thought that the angels, because they were called stars, uh, the stars of God, uh, that they were created along with the stars, and that would be on the fourth day. And then Satan fell sometime after Genesis 2-4. That is a popular view. There's a number of problems with that view. Uh, we'll look at the major problem in a, in a few minutes. That's uh, Job 38, 4 through 7, which says that when God laid the foundation of the earth, all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, the word there for foundation indicates that which comes first. So how could all of the sons of God, that would be angels, united, not divided yet, how could they all uh, sing for joy when... Um, when when the foundations of the earth are laid, if they're not created until the fourth day. That's a major, major problem with that first view. The second view is that angels are created and Satan falls before Genesis 1-1. Okay? That again falls prey to the same problem in Job 38, 4-7. Because if they... If Satan falls, then you have a division. Then you have a division among the angels, and all the sons of God would not be united as they are in Job 38, 4 through 7. Okay, so uh, this puts Satan's fall before Genesis 1 1. The third view is the view that God created the angels, then the original universe. Okay, and that would make them united at when God creates the original universe, which is just the heavens, the space, and the earth. Now, I want you to think in your mind, I want you to picture something in your mind. Picture the universe. Are, do you have stars in your universe? Take the stars out. Stars aren't created to the fourth day. So when God creates the universe in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, it didn't have any stars. They're not created to the fourth day. You can't, you can't manipulate the language to say God made them appear. It's just the universe. It's a space-time continuum that has a planet in it. That's it. It's a different universe than the one we have now. And so I might say, well, wouldn't it be pretty dark? There's no sun. Well, if you compare with Revelation 21, in, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, there will be no stars, because the glory of God illuminates the earth. 
That's the way I believe it was at the very beginning. When when God created the heavens and the earth, it's just a space-time continuum with one planet. And that planet is the planet where Lucifer served, where Halel bin Shahar served. And it is a planet that seems to be a little different. He served among the stones of fire. That's what's said there in Ezekiel chapter 28. When we, when we studied that, I pointed that out. So I don't know if it's just a mineral planet, which is what uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, suggests, I don't know, but I do think it's not the Garden of Eden. It's called Eden, the Garden of God, but it's not the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve are in. Now, you'll find some some people who come along and say that this is that's a metaphor for Adam in the Garden, but nothing fits there at all. So, I believe that which explains everything the best is the third position. In theology... What we have to do sometimes is follow a principle that was laid out by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and put on the lips of his famous hero, Sherlock Holmes. And that is that once you've eliminated everything that is impossible, whatever you're left with, no matter how improbable, must be the solution. And that's true in all kinds of investigations. And so I think that's what we have here. Once we eliminate other alternatives, what's left, no matter how difficult it may be for us to grasp it all, must be the answer because it's the only thing that fits. Now, this third view is often called the gap theory, which has come to, which really refers to a lot more than just that position, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But there's a problem, too, with that view. Exodus 20, verse 11 says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the Hebrew word translated made there is the word asa. It's not the word bara. Hebrew's got a unique word for creation, and it only applies to God. God has his own word for, for what he does in creation. Because human beings are never said to bara anything, only God baras. And it doesn't mean to create out of nothing. It might be that he's creating out of nothing, but what it does mean is that it is a supernatural creation that comes from God. He's not just fashioning it from already made materials. He is not forming it like a potter forms the clay. Those are other words that are used in the in the text for creation. So people will come along and say, well, it says that God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. That means everything. That means that before he started that creation, there was nothing. But it's a different word for create, and I think that's important. The other verse that I'd pointed out earlier is this one, in terms of uh, Job 38.7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, I've got a couple of charts here I put together, little animations on the stages of creation. So God created the universe, and it's this black hole. It's just a space-time continuum. The universe didn't have anything in it at all until 
God made the earth. And that was it. You have one planet in the universe. And that is described, I believe, in Ezekiel 28 as Eden, the garden of God. And that's the original earth that's described in Genesis 1.1. Then something happened. In Genesis 1.2, it says the earth became and without form or vo- and void. And there's a lot of debate over the, the sense of that verb there translated was, whether it means became as if it was one thing and then it became something else, or whether it's just making a statement of this is now how it was. Uh, either case, it goes from perfection, because God can only create perfection, to a state of chaos. And it's described as tohu vabohu in the Hebrew. It is without form and void. Now, that's been minimized by some scholars to say it just meant that it was shapeless and empty. But the verbs are used in a couple of places in the prophets to indicate God's judgment on Israel. So it's a word that is often associated by, with, with judgment. Now, in and of itself, as this was the only phrase that we had, you, it couldn't carry that weight. But that's not the only phrase that we have. It's, with, it's tohu vabohu, and then darkness is on the face of, of the deep. And that darkness there is a darkness that indicates judgment. Throughout the scripture, darkness is always indicative of sin. When God creates, he is light. So this is darkness. It, it becomes this, tohu vabohu. And then something happened, then God begins a new restoration of that planet. Now, the problem with this is that this view has actually been documented going back into ancient Jewish sources, going back to um, at least the second century. The Targum of Ankalos mentions a that there's a world before and then the world, the present world after. And there are other sources that indicate that in the early period of Christianity, probably in the late periods before Christ, that there was this understanding that there is some sort of uh, time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. John Milton Y'all read Paradise Lost when you were in probably high school or college. You read John Milton, Paradise Lost. Milton has this exact view that Satan falls and this brings about this judgment on the planet and then God has to restore it. There are others who held this view long before Darwin came along long before Lyell came along with his long ages for historical geology. When people believed throughout this time, Christians, Bible believers, believed that the earth was only um, was created somewhere around 4,000 4, B.C., young earth believers, they believed that there was a, this time lapse. And that did not mean that they believed in billions and billions of years. 
And so what happened is that in the late 1700s, as historical geology was developing, the idea they had was that, well, it looks like the universe is is a lot older than four or 5,000 years. It's about 40 or 50,000 years. Well, theologians were saying, well, we, we can't let the Bible contradict science. What's, what's 35,000 years? So we'll just figure out a place to, to stick it. And so there was a guy named Thomas Chalmers who was like the... the um, it was like the Lewis Berry Chafer of Scottish Reformed Church in Scotland. Wrote dozens of books, very, very famous. And he came up with the idea that what we have here in this, this gap is, is this really, this is when there, you put the 35,000 years, and this is when fossils were formed. Now, fossils are either formed here or they're formed by the flood, but they can't be both. And so what happens is about 90% of the people who held to the old earth gap view did not believe in a worldwide flood at the time of Noah. There were a few exceptions. But for the most part, the old earth gappers did not believe in a worldwide flood. They put all of the geologic ages and all of the fossils and everything into this period. They had pre-Adamic races. They had pre-Adamic creatures. In other words, they had death before sin, before the fall. They had physical death before Adam's sin. And if there's physical death before Adam's sin, and that's preserved in the fossil record, then death isn't the result of Adam's sin. Death is the result of something else. And remember, death wasn't the consequence for Satan's sin. I've had somebody say, well, we can, we can surmise that it was. Well, we can surmise a lot of things if you don't want to be biblical. But for those of us who want to be biblical, we're not going to speculate. I get irritated with speculators. There are way too many of them, and we get into a lot of it when we get into this study. So uh, the thing that makes the best evidence, best case, is that there was this, there was a, time period here, could have been 100 years, could have been 200 years, I don't think it was very long. The only reason you think in terms of long ages is because you've been brainwashed by all the uh, old earth findings of modern science that's been influenced by evolutionary presuppositions. But before evolutionary presuppositions and Lyell and historical geology came along, you didn't have that. And if you really, if you have a scientific bent and you really want to look at this stuff, I suggest that you look at um, uh, the RATE books, R-A-T-E. It's the, oh, I can't remember what it stands for. It's a radiometric um, age of the earth. That's what it is. And this was a lengthy study that I, Institute for Creation Research, and they published both books. And you can get them online and find them through Google Earth and read them. And these articles are detailed, and they're all science, technical science, where they have demonstrated time and time again, and you can look at some of Steve Austin's material from the first time he was here, and he presents a lot of this, the scientific case that disproves old earth thinking, that disproves the, the clocks that they have for measuring the age of the earth. So the earth is young, 
There's nothing in the Bible, if you read it at face value, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate an old earth. And so God then creates the stars on the fourth day. The angels fell with the original earth. God judges the earth with the fall of Lucifer and brings darkness on the earth. And then we surmise from the text, it's a legitimate deduction, that there must have been some sort of trial. Now, why do we know that? Well, let's get into the next topic, which is the existence of the demons. Existence of the demons. Matthew 25, 41 is a key passage. Seems like I've been spending a lot of time lately in Matthew 24 and 25. This is in the section at the end that's the sheep and the goat judgments. And it's the separation of the uh, sheep, those who have been, been believers who survived the tribulation, go on Jesus' right, and those who are unbelievers are identified as goats, and they go to his left. And so then he says to those on his left, the unbelievers, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this word translated prepared is in the perfect tense. That means it's completed action in past time. That's the sense of the perfect tense in grammar. So that means that the lake of fire has already been fully built, constructed, and prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for human beings. It was created for the devil and this angelic rebellion, those angels that followed Satan in his rebellion. Now that begs the question, what, in, for what reason are they not there? If God judged them and condemned them to the lake of fire and built the uh, place for their eternal punishment, why aren't they there? For some reason, that punishment's been postponed. Now, we don't know exactly what that conversation was. We don't know precisely what was said to forestall God's uh, enacting that sentence. But it seems that one of the questions that has been used throughout history to challenge God is that how can a loving and righteous God send his creatures to the lake of fire? I've expanded on that question quite a bit because uh, I think that it, it, it leaves a little bit to be desired. The development of that question is it seems to be unfair that God would send his creatures to an eternal punishment for some temporal infraction. Why is God going to give this horrid punishment forever and ever for something as innocuous as disobeying him which, and wanting to be like him, which is what Satan did? Remember, it's prepared for Satan's sin, it's not prepared for Adam's sin. And the reason is, is that God recognizes that when the, any creature violates his law, moral, spiritual, or physical, it impacts all of his creation in such a way that it leads to the destruction of his creation. It introduces something called evil into the universe. 
And evil is destructive. It is, uh, it violates everything that God had created and it brings absolute discord and disharmony into all of God's creation. And as a result, God has to punish evil because of all of the suffering and horrors that it brings into the universe that have this, this unbelievable impact. Now, when Satan rebelled against God, we know that he had a time period there when he was able to convince some of his other or fellow angels to follow him in that rebellion. Revelation 12, verse 4 says that, that he drew, and this is talking about a future event, but it says that he th- drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Stars of heaven is a metaphor for the angels. These are the fallen angels. So of the myriads and myriads of angels, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, mi- of millions of angels, that a third of them followed Satan. And so that began a war in the heavenlies against God. And so you had the angelic host divided into these two segments, these two groups. First Timothy 5.21, Paul says about Timothy, says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his elect angels. That's the word that's there in the, in the Greek, meaning elect or chosen angels. And then in Mark 8.38, Jesus referred to them as the holy angels. These are in contrast to the demons or the fallen angels. And we'll see that there are different segments of fallen angels. They're different. They have an organization just as the elect angels or the holy angels do. So that tells us something about all of this that happened long before the, uh, uh, the earth was restored and Adam and Eve were created. Now, in the history of the human race, there have been several satanic assaults on the human race. And we can divide them into two categories, categories of direct assaults and categories of indirect assaults, okay? In terms of direct assaults, the first direct assault occurred in the Garden of Eden. You may not be able to see that picture. Maybe I need to enlarge that picture next time. That's a picture of Adam and Eve around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the first assault, where Satan takes on the form of a serpent, Nahash, That's an interesting word. I'm not going to get distracted by that, but I think there's more to it than just a snake. I think that um, that because he's referred to Satan is referred to as the dragon in Revelation. I think that this is more than uh, what we might think of as a as a beautiful snake. It was probably uh, a reptilian creature, close more closely uh, identified as a as a as a dragon than a rattlesnake, but just as deadly. Okay, that's the first direct assault. The second direct assault takes place in Genesis chapter 6. That's really the focal point of this whole study and where we're, uh, where we're headed 
uh, in this study is to understand this particular assault that occurred in Genesis chapter 6. Then that is followed by the flood and the Tower of Babel. The demons that entered into that assault on the human race were bound in Tartarus. Now we're going to see that those are the spirits bound in prison that Paul talks, uh, Peter talks about in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 19. It's ref- they're referred to again in Chains of Darkness in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude. We'll look at those passages as well. We don't see a whole lot about Satan or the demons mentioned in the Old Testament. There's a few case instances. There's instances of, um, of Satan mentioned. We get a good look at what goes on behind the scenes as God calls this convocation or assembly of his of the sons of God uh, before his throne in Job 1 and 2. And then we see uh, Satan as the accuser in Zechariah, and we see Satan tempting, uh, t- tempting David at the end of his reign, which brings a judgment on the Israelites. So, but not much more. We see the evil spirit coming upon Saul in 1 Samuel. That's pretty much it. There's not a well-developed demonology in the Old Testament. Also, we learn that the demons are behind the false religions and the idols. And not just mythology, but those deities represent are the facades of, of demons. In the gospel accounts, you have these episodes of demon possession. It's really interesting that you don't have demon possession talked about, identified, or mentioned as a problem in the Old Testament. You don't see it ever mentioned or talked about as a problem in the New Testament epistles. You only see these episodes of demon possession take place during the time of Christ's public ministry and his incarnation. Uh, so this is, this is, I think, very interesting. I think it's something that occurred in reaction to the king coming to present the kingdom. I don't think it is something that was, is normative in human history. And it may be, again, in the tribulation period. I'm not going to rule it out completely, but the silence of Scripture is just reverberating. Why, if it's such a big problem that some people think it is, is are the epistles so glaringly silent about demon possession? Okay, we have the church age. Ends with the rapture, then we have the seven-year tribulation period. And during this time, there's uh, three different uh, uh, things that happen in relation to the angels. There's an, a, an assault of the locust demons in Revelation 9. There's an assault of a 200 million demon army in Revelation 9, 12 to 25. And then we see the ejection of Satan and a third of the angels out of heaven in Revelation 12, and they come down to the earth, and they're attacking uh, Israel and the Jews during the second half of the tribulation. These are all direct assaults um, during the tribulation period. That just gives you a nice overview and nice chart. So 
what we see then is a reference in the New Testament to this event that occurs in Genesis chapter 6. So before, I don't have a slide on Genesis 6. I want you to turn with me there. Genesis chapter 6, and let's read what the text says. We'll start in verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. And then verse 4 begins, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. All right. Now, when we have this term sons of God, the term sons of God is used to refer to, uh, used to refer to fallen angels in Job 1, and are the angels, excuse me, not just fallen angels, but to the angels in, in Job uh, chapter 1, verse 6, for example, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So that term, sons of God, just is a generic term for angels. I believe it's because each one is individually created by God. You don't have sexual relations. Angels aren't built for sexual relations to procreate and make baby angels. So each angel is individually created by God, so therefore he is a son of God. And um, that doesn't mean that he is uh, deity. So you have passages there in Genesis, uh, or in Job 1.6, and then also in Job uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and in the passage I mentioned earlier in Job 38.7. Uh, uh, this is a term that refers to angels. It is, in the Hebrew, it's B'nai Ha Elohim. Now there's one term uh, that comes up later in uh, I believe it's in uh, uh, Deuteronomy. It's either Numbers or Deuteronomy. And it refers to I the boundaries of Israel according to the sons of Yahweh. And it's translated sons of God in English. But the Hebrew is sons of Yahweh. And I read one very well-known theologian who has uh, written a systematic theology, who's not, which is now your main textbook in evangelicalism. And he makes the freshman mistake of saying see there are other places that refer to the sons of God that don't refer to angels it's a different word in the Hebrew it's B'neha Yahweh it's not B'neha Elohim B'neha Elohim is the term that's used in all these other passages that refers to to the angels so that's a very important uh, distinction and what we're told here is that in some way, and this is where we, we don't understand how this works, in some way they had sexual intercourse with human women and they produced offspring that are identified as Nephilim. Now, I think that a problem with Nephilim is that, is that first of all, too many people have taken that as a technical term for half demon, half men. The word shows up, as we'll see later on in um, other passages, and it doesn't, it, it can't be the same people because these 
offspring of these demons would all have been annihilated in the Noahic flood if you believe in a worldwide flood. The only way you could get that bloodline to continue into into the post-flood environment would be if you had a local flood. But it's very clear from Genesis 7, Genesis 8, that this is a worldwide flood that covered all of the earth. I mean, you can go through and read through uh, the last part of Genesis 6, starting in uh, verse 13. It says the end of all flesh, verse 17, all flesh, <coughs> then everything. And then in 19, and of everything of all flesh will be destroyed, every creeping thing, you know, all, all, all. And, and it continues and just circle the words every, all, and everything down through chapter 8 and you'll see that everything is destroyed. There's nothing left other than the eight human beings and the animals that are on the ark with Noah. So there's no way these Nephilim that were there prior to the, to the flood could continue after, after the flood. They were, I believe, a hybrid. It was Satan's attempt to genetically destroy the purity of the human race to block the coming of the seed of the woman so that a savior could not be provided. Uh, God could not fulfill his promise to provide a savior uh, for the human race. Now, that view has been disputed by a lot of theologians. Uh, Not a lot. I think that's the dominant view. But there are those who've disputed it. One view is that the sons of God refers to all of the descendants of Seth, which are listed in the genealogy in chapter 5. And then the uh, sons of uh, uh, the, the daughters of men refers to all of the descendants of, of Cain. There's several problems with that. Number one, sons of God's never used that way. Number two, if you take seriously the numbers and the years and the ages and the population growth and demographics, then the population at the end of approximately 1,800 years after the fall of man, the population on the earth would be between three to five billion people if each family only had four or five children. Uh, Henry Morris does an excellent job in his commentary on Genesis as well as in the Genesis flood, uh, which he wrote with uh, John Whitcomb, uh, showing that, that the, because these they, people lived for 900 years so their fertility ages was probably much more than, you know, 15 to 65. It was probably something like 15 to three or 400. And they had many, many children, not just four or five. But if you're very conservative and you say that each family only had four or five, but those families lived nine centuries, then you, you come out with numbers showing a worldwide population of around three to five billion people. Now, we just surpassed that in the last 20 years in, uh, as our population continues to, to grow almost, almost exponentially. So the view that these are human beings is, is discredited by the term sons of God never refers to human beings in the Old Testament. It, it doesn't take seriously the ages and the numbers and the years. And then... We would assume that all of the descendants of, um, of, of Seth were believers, 
and all of the descendants of Cain are unbelievers, and that the sin is the intermarriage of unbelievers with believers. And that just doesn't hold water. So, and that they, that marriage of unbelievers with believers produced these giants, these Nephilim. Again, this doesn't do justice with the text. So, there's a third view that's really a minority view, and that is that the term sons of God just referred to those who were mighty warriors and kings in the antediluvian world, but there's very, very few people who justify that, and it also has all the problems with the um, sons of Seth view and uh, doesn't really fit the text. But the biggest problem is how the New Testament handles this. So I want you to turn with me to the from the first book of the Bible to the second to last book in the Bible. It's really just a postcard called Jude, written by a half-brother to the humanity of Jesus by the name of Jude, who came to understanding the gospel after the resurrection. And we have an interesting description given in Jude verse 6. Somebody one time said, I can't find Jude 6. It only has one chapter. That's right. You don't list Jude 1, 6. It's Jude verse 6. So, okay. <clears throat> there we're told, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, that's R.K., R.K. is the word for first. You know, like arch, archangel. Okay, it has the idea of primacy or the first. So they didn't keep their first habitat, but abandoned their proper abode, oiktirman. Oikos is the word for house or home, um, building. So they abandoned their initial dwelling place. So that tells us it's talking about angels. It's talking about a group of angels that didn't stay in their original created order or created abode. And so this could also refer to somehow changing their, their original created body. And we do have examples of angels, for example, in Genesis chapters, um, chapter 17, 18 rather, when um, you had two angels accompanying the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ as he is walking to uh, uh, Abraham. And they come in, they're tired, they sleep, they, um, they eat, they drink, they have these all these bodily functions of a human being, they look for all practical purpose like a human being, and they have all the functions of a human being. So why couldn't they uh, enable themselves to have some sort of procreative function? Genesis 6 makes it very clear that the sons of God procreated with those. We may not understand how that happens, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Now, these angels, this subset of angels, are kept in eternal bonds under darkness. So there's those chains of darkness again, like we have in Second Peter. 
He kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this is talking about the great white throne judgment when Satan and the angels will be cast into the lake of fire. Then their sin is compared to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not arrogance. That's what you hear from the LGBTQXYZ crowd because they misinterpret a passage I think it's in Isaiah, that is using Sodom metaphorically for Jerusalem. If they'd read back to the first verse in the chapter, they'd understand it's talking about the arrogance of Jerusalem. But this, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a sexual sin, which is what Jude talks about. And he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, those cities of the plain, since they, that is Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities, they in the, no, no, wait a minute. The they here refers back to the angels, okay? So make that point in your notes. Since they, the angels, in the same way as these, so this is a near reference, these, Sodom and Gomorrah. See, it's shifted to talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as they, that is the, the angels, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So what James is saying is that he's comparing the sin of these angels in Jude 6 with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and says it's the same sin. It's a sexual sin. So that reinforces what Genesis 6 says. Whether you understand it or not is not the point. The point is the text of Scripture, Old and New Testament, both related to a sexual sin. They went after another kind of flesh, heteros. Not the same kind of flesh, that's hamas. Heteros and exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So that takes us back to the Genesis 2 account and relates to their offspring, these Nephilim. Now another thing that comes up with the Nephilim is that there's a passage in Numbers 13.33 that also mentions Nephilim. Once again, we're going to have to apply the Sherlock Holmes principle. You eliminate all that is impossible. Whatever is left, no matter how improbable or incredulous, must be the answer because the other alternatives are, are, are not viable. When you have the spies go into the land in Numbers 13, they come back and they say, we see giants on the earth, Nephilim, and they're called the descendants of Anak, the Anakim. Now, the Anakim were, were one tribe that experienced giantism in the ancient world. Who is a descendant of the Anakim? Goliath. Because some of the Anakim survived the conquest by escaping to the Philistines, and so he's half Philistine and half Anakim. Now, what's interesting is, is Heiser in this book is building this whole scenario that the Anakim and, and Og, the king of Bashan, was also a giant, that these giants are somehow related to the same Nephilim. Now, I... I just, I haven't read everything he said. I don't think he takes, I, I don't think he takes a local flood view. 
what it appears to me that he's doing is he's he's saying that somehow there's this incursion that takes place again after the flood from the demons. Now, the problem with that is that Second Peter 2 and Jude make it really clear that God really lowered the hammer on those angels and and sent them to Tartarus and confined them in chains of darkness. And that ended that tactic of Satan to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. I just don't see that. What I do see is a something throughout human history, and that is that when human beings move from some one place that is familiar to another place that is unfamiliar, they use the same geographical nomenclature to identify places in the new location. For example, before the flood, there are four rivers that go out of the Garden of Eden. And two of them are called the Tigris and the Euphrates. And everybody who doesn't really believe the Bible comes along and says, see, the Garden of Eden has to be located somewhere in the Fertile Crescent because every that's where these two rivers are located. We don't know where the others are. Maybe they were canals between. We really don't know, but that's where the Tigris and Euphrates are, so that's where the Eden should be. Well, that's crazy. That's like going up to going up to uh, Massachusetts and saying, oh, we found Boston and assigning to that Boston all the information that applies to the Boston in, uh, in England or going to Connecticut and going to Norwich, Connecticut and assigning to Norwich, Connecticut all of the history that belongs to Norwich, England. When the flood occurred, it completely destroyed the geography that existed prior to the flood. It changed the riverbeds. It changed everything. Now, when you, they got off the ark, they saw this big river, and they said, we're going to call that the Euphrates because that was the name of the big river they were familiar with in the pre-flood environment. Then they saw another one. They called it the Tigris. Same kind of thing happens when the uh, English settlers came to America. They said, we're going to establish a town here. We're going to call it Jerusalem. Because they, and we have more cities in America called Jerusalem or Zion or something like that, uh, or, or Bethlehem. There's a Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, named for Bethlehem in Israel. There's all these place names of England that you find in America. You have New London. You have London. You have New Canaan. They call it New Canaan, I think, or something like that. It's really strange. But anyhow, um, what you have is in a post-flood environment, you saw these giants. Now, one of the things I'm still working through, and I'm not totally convinced of, but there have been recent studies that have argued that based on skeletal remains and based on um, further understanding of the length of the cubit, at the time of the Philistines, that instead of Goliath being nine foot nine, he was six foot six. But to the average height of an Israelite at that time, it was five feet. And so somebody six six looks pretty much a giant to somebody who's who's five foot. And and I'm just, I'm not going to necessitate that right now. But that putting these giants as six six compared to what we're seeing in these mighty men of renown in Genesis 6 just just doesn't pass the smell test with me. Furthermore, as I look at Heiser, one of the problems that I always flag on, 
aside from things like anybody who's got a already not yet view, some of these other things, he frequently goes to the book of Enoch. And I've seen this before. I've had a couple of men who are in this church for a while who really got into this whole thing, reading the book of Enoch and going out on the Internet. Apparently, there's all kinds of speculation out on the Internet that that uh, there's going to be this with, with all of the, uh, um, you know, uh, science today, DNA and everything else and, and creating life in a test tube and everything. They're, they're going to recreate the Nephilim. And there's this this enormous amount of speculation and I look at people like that, and I said this to one of those men. I said, you know, if you spent half the amount of time focusing on your spiritual life and applying what you know doctrinally that you spend in all this speculation, you'd be a really mature believer. And Paul is constantly telling people, don't get wrapped up in fables and genealogies and, and, and these kind of worthless arguments. But it distracts people. So that's one problem, is that using the book of Enoch as if it's on a level with Scripture. Now, Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, but that doesn't mean that he's elevating it to the level of Scripture. It was never considered part of the Apocrypha, part of the Pseudepigrapha. It was never, ever considered as something that should be part of Scripture. And just because Scripture in the Old Testament refers to various other history books that were used as sources because they were true. There are things that are said in the Book of Mormon that are true. I'm not going to quote them because then somebody may get the idea they ought to read the Book of Mormon to find truth. But remember, Satan's lies are 98% true. I think the Book of Enoch has some interesting material in it which shows that at least what it shows is that in the uh, ancient world and in the early church, they believed that Genesis 6 involved a demonic uh, infiltration of the human race. But then there's other statements I find in Heiser's book where he says, well, this was added by when, when the book reached its final form after the exile. And I've read that at least a dozen times. And whenever I read an author saying that, I mean, th this guy's got a problem with mosaic authorship. He's just not coming right out and saying it. That He's saying that the Pentateuch what, didn't reach its final form until after the exile. And I have serious problems with that kind of orthodoxy. I don't think that is um, fair to the text. I don't think it's fair to the history of the text. I don't think it's fair to inerrancy and infallibility. So I just... I read books, and I see phrases that just set off all kinds of warning bells. And there's a lot of speculation in his book, and it's titillating, and it's incurred, but I don't think it, I would never recommend someone uh, to read that book. So don't get distracted and waste your time. Go read He That Is Spiritual or Chafer Systematic Theology, and you'll get a lot more out of it. Okay, Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into uh, Sheol, or Tartarus, rather Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, the ungodly. So what we see here is, once again, God judged these angels when they sinned. He cast them into Tartarus, to pits of darkness and uh, uh, awaiting a future judgment. 
and it is connected with what happened at the time of Noah. Not with something that happens later after the, after the flood when you have some sort of second Nephilim race. Okay? So what happens here with Jesus is that he goes to these spirits who are in prison, those that are in Tartarus, the, the, the sons of God who violated their abode in Genesis chapter 6. And he is announcing that their doom is secured now because he has won the strategic victory on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. That's this victorious proclamation. And so it also, these spirits are also tied contextually to uh, what happens in the days of Noah. And so all of that fits that this event that in, happens in Genesis chapter 6 is an, in, 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 this angelic infiltration into, into the human race. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to work our way through these, these numerous passages and scriptures and put them together. And it may leave us with questions, and there may be areas that, that you haven't revealed to us, but you've given us the broad outline and structure of what transpired in the ancient world and that there is one segment of angels that are uh, held in Tartarus in chains, and they're in darkness, and they are being reserved for that future judgment. So there are different sets of fallen angels uh, that are in different places. We have those of uh, the uh, fifth and sixth uh, trumpet judgments, and they are being held in reserve for things that will take place in the tribulation. And, Father, we pray that you would um, uh, help us to understand these things, but not to become too curious or too speculative in trying to uh, understand things that you have not revealed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.